Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sarah Wallace Goodman about her book, Citizenship in Hard Times, How Ordinary People Respond to Democratic Threat. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So I wonder if you could begin the interview uh, by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am a professor of political science. Uh, I have I live in Irvine, California. I have two small kids. My hobbies are um, sewing, and I love Broadway musicals. Is that what you wanted to know? <laughs> That sounds wonderful. We're excited to to have you on the show, um, but we're going to focus on interview, uh, not on your hobbies, but rather just on this book, um, Citizenship in Hard Times. I should also mention that um, Sarah Wallace Goodman uh, just had another book come out, which is co-authored, that's on another very timely topic um, called Pandemic Politics. But we're going to focus on citizenship in hard times in this conversation. So, Sarah, how did you come to write this book? Well... I have kind of uh, two answers to that question. The first is intellectually, right? How I got to um, this question about studying citizenship norms and democratic hard times. So both of those topics were kind of new to me. So previously my research was on uh, citizenship rules, uh, the policies by which uh, immigrants either are eligible for citizenship or not, right? So that was kind of the focus in, in how I was thinking about citizenship. But in in that kind of research field, you know, my research was preoccupied with um, what are the expectations that societies have that immigrants demonstrate that they have met in order to naturalize, right? So um, my first book, uh, Immigration and Membership Politics in Western Europe, was, was studying these cultural requirements, these language requirements, these country knowledge requirements, these commitments and oaths of national values, right? And it was so important to policymakers in, you know, a majority of Western European countries where we see these new policies. It was so important to them that immigrants demonstrate that they have commitments to liberal democratic values and that they understand the rules of society. And like, it, it kind of always occurred to, I was always kind of asking myself two questions as I was studying this. Is like, one, like policymakers seem like they have a very clear idea about what it means to be British or German or Dutch, right? And I'm curious if, ordinary, if, you know, native born, as, as we refer to in the literature, right, if people born in, you know, to German parents in, in Germany, right, if they hold the same values, that was kind of one question I had about it. And the, the second was, is like, how stable are these values? Like, are we always liberal Democrats? Are there conditions in, in, under which like these values might change? Uh, and so like, the disparity, the huge gap between like what immigrants were expected to know and what kind of native born are, it's it's assumed that they know was like 
an itch in my throat. Like it was kind of always bothering me a bit as I was kind of doing this early work. And so this was kind of on the forefront of my mind as kind of a big, large scale democratic um, you know, backsliding started to take place in 2015, 2016. So as I'm asking myself this question about like, well, what do citizens think that being a good citizen means? Like, and as these sort of big, large scale events started to take place, like I kind of started to combine these ideas intellectually into this project. Um, because I wanted to see, well, like, do these change? And I guess always in the back of my mind, I, I thought like, oh, are we maybe then, you know, do we need to have a conversation about kind of what's expected of, of newcomers versus what's expected of native born? So I suppose that the end game of that intellectual exercise was always like, well, we need to take civic education more seriously. So but like, that's something I'm sure you'll we'll talk about later when we talk about the conclusion. So that's like the intellectual answer to how did you get to this book? Like the pragmatic answer is um, I was cobbling together uh, research between managing two small kids. Um, and like that's, a, I think, a really important part of kind of it is making kind of visible the kind of the hidden efforts that, you know, uh, professors, that researchers with, with young children um or with caregiving duties generally, right? Uh, I think that this is part of kind of the hidden work that we do. And I, it's really important to me that it becomes explicit because, um, you know, the this book was written in the 30 minute nap periods, right? It was written, you know, you don't have that, the luxury of showing up to the office at nine and leaving at five. And, you know, I can show, not our audience, but I can show Lamise that like the first draft of this book was written on a page of coloring book. Like it was a page, a page ripped out of my kid's coloring um, book. And I kind of, I keep it next to my desk on the pin board because I think it's an important reminder that like these research questions are important and they drive us and they give us meaning and, and we make it work um, despite sort of, I think some of the real obstacles, but that uh, these obstacles are kind of part of the process themselves. So I did dedicate the book to my, to my children because like it was important that I ask and answer this question because I want the, uh, democracy is a good thing and I want I want democracy to, to be better for them. So that's the two-part Thank answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. Um, and you know, in, in the book, and this is part of the reason why I described it as, as being so timely, um, you discuss, uh, you know, concerns about democratic uh, crises and democratic threats in the United States, certainly, um, but also more globally. And the, and the book um, certainly, I think, is one that would be of interest to people who care about democracy in the United States, but also democracy uh, elsewhere as well. Um, so as I understand it, the, the central question in the book is, what happens to norms of citizenship in democratic hard times? And let's start with sort of your understanding of citizenship. Uh, now, you define citizenship norms along three dimensions, behavior, beliefs, and belonging. You call these the three Bs. Can you explain these three Bs to us? Yes. So in reading kind of all the outstanding work on um, citizenship and public opinion, right, on uh, studies that have used questions that uh, examine norms. Uh, a lot of the focus was on um, the things that people do, right? So the answer to what does it mean to be a good citizen was like, I vote or um, I, I'm engaged, I read the news. These are things that you do, 
right? These are behaviors. Um, you know, a lot of this work is built on on my colleague uh, Russ Dalton and his work on good citizenship, and it was about active and engaged citizenship or citizens that interpret a duty, right? And because I think I come out of the immigration literature, like I knew that 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 wasn't a sufficient way to capture good citizenship. It's certainly not what immigrants are taught a good citizen is. Um, you know, we, we can have a long kind of side conversation about whether policymakers want immigrants to vote or not. And but like there are a lot of things that they define as good citizenship, which are not which are separate from this you know, the behavior conversation, the, the, the public opinion conversations. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to, to ask more. You know, I wanted to see, well, there's more to being a good citizen than behavior. Um, and maybe, maybe there's like a sufficient argument. Maybe it's like, it's enough that you just hold certain beliefs, right? So, you know, one of the other influences was thinking about, um, uh, sort of the fate of liberalism, I guess, right? And, wh- and what are the core principles of liberalism that really right, that really matter and that we were really scared about in 2016 uh, with you know, the Brexit vote and, and, and with you know um, the election of Trump, right? Things like tolerance, things you know, mutual tolerance, not just acceptance of diversity, but like recognizing that people have different views, right? And so maybe it was enough that like these were present, right? Maybe that makes a good citizen, that you're like willing to talk to your neighbor if you know that they voted differently than you. So, um, or willing not to like demonize them, right? Uh, So it occurred to me that like, it is more than behavior, right? It's also kind of the things that you believe that 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 could be enough for, you know, someone to consider themselves or to consider others good citizenship. And then the last certainly comes out of the immigration literature because there's really no mention of this um, in, in the, um, in work that only samples native born is like, well, what, you know, does a good citizen have to love their country? Does a good citizen have to look a certain way, speak a certain way. Um, so I wanted to include kind of these dimensions of belonging, like, cause it, it is also possible that uh, a sufficient definition of good citizenship means that you love America, but it could also mean that you speak English for some. And so it was kind of just a function of combining these different literatures, right? So how we think about citizenship in immigration studies and how we think about citizenship from, um, the political behavior, public opinion perspective, and kind of combining them, right? And and so, like many things, I think in political science, so much of our kind of our theories and our concepts are really born out of the the way we study things, the subjects that are right that are you know um, that are the object of our analysis, right? So if you only study native born, you're only going to think about citizenship in certain ways, and if you only study outsiders seeking to obtain status, well, you're going to think about it in a different way as well. So it's about kind of just not just combining literatures, but really kind of these perspectives of different subject groups. And it's it's very compelling. And I think that, that in and of itself is also a very valuable contribution, right? This multifaceted um, uh, conception of what citizenship and good citizenship means. Um, now, wh- one of the arguments you make in the book is that 
you know, you point out that a lot of the literature that we have is focused on sort of top down explanations for democratic stability and instability on the role of elites. But we know much less about the role of citizens. Right. So I want to ask you, what is the role of citizenship in contributing to democratic stability? Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the thinking through eventually, yeah, right, it's called the theory of democratic instability, but like to the, the first kind of insight is really building on kind of early democracy studies and recognizing the role that citizens are not just like a core foundation to democracy, but they are like the source of its sovereignty, right? That states, you know, democratic states derive their sovereignty from the citizens, right? They play a key role. So, um, in, in, you know, perpetuating, supporting, consolidating the regime. So like, I wanted to think about, well, what are citizens doing, right? So we know how they, we know how they confer through behavior, democratic meaning, legitimacy, right? They vote, but like, they're also then the, again, not just the behaviors, there's also values there, right? So, you know, Democracy scholars will talk about procedural minimums. You have Jaworski's institutional minimum definition, but then we also have like that there are values, right? And we know that there are, are meaningful values because the past you know, seven, eight years, if you're a scholar of American politics, you would say, you know, six, since the 1960s, right? So we can go back, but like that when you observe democratic um, backsliding or deconsolidation or erosion, that, that it, it's, it's the... It's the values, right? It's, it's not just the institutions, it's the values. And citizens are the holder of the values. Um, and so that's why when you think about, well, what makes democracy stable? It's not just that people elect leaders. It's not just that parties compete. It's not just that parties can lose. But it's that there are a certain amount of values that are held between individuals, that they are held between individuals, most critically, across cross-cutting networks. That's how you can have democracy in deeply divided or diverse societies, right? That, you know, it's not about homogenization of, of values, but it's about unity, right? That there are uh, shared values that can coexist, that can transcend across groups, you know, vertically different groups. And so I wanted to sort of theorize a bit about citizenship explicitly in that role, uh, that citizens keep those values, um, you know, they keep the norms through everyday practices, through intersubjectivity. Like they, they maintain those values. Uh, so you know, it's one thing for uh, to have procedures in the Constitution that ensure um, transition of power. That's the term. Uh, it's one thing for the Constitution to require it. It's another thing for you know citizens to recognize it, right? So they maintain values, and we see on January sixth what happens when people don't. So citizens are kind of, you know, so I argue an under-theorized but critical part in maintaining the norms that maintain a liberal democracy. And that keeps the democracy stable, right? When those norms exist, and importantly, that they they exist across these cross-cutting networks. They are cross-cutting norms, right? Um, it, it, are, it, it secures what, you know, that... Um, a minimum national unity, right? That we can exist across those, uh, across our differences uh, to define national group goals, right? Because that's sort of the point of a national identity of a, um, what Rustow said was a, a mandatory prerequisite, right? For, that the, the state is unified with, the, with national unity uh, is a prerequisite for democracy. So like 
you need group goals in order to establish legitimacy for a government to then pursue those goals. So citizens establish and keep those values and, you know, not to, I guess, jump ahead, but like, there's nothing inherently partisan about those identities, right? It's, um, there's nothing inherently um, democratic or Republican about being American, right? That has to be an identity that supersedes um, partisanship. So that's how citizenship is a source of democratic stability. Right. So moving to how citizenship can become a source of instability. Now, you argue that citizenship can um, can like generate or contribute to instability if it becomes partisan. But that depends on what you call positional incentives and institutional design. So can you explain your reasoning there? Aren't those exciting terms? Uh, Yeah. So the the argument is here that democratic citizenship becomes a source of instability when it becomes partisan, when you see your obligations or your understanding of national goals um, as through the lens of your partisan identity, right? So we've all read Lily Mason, we all know, we've all read Tajfel, we know about social identities and how partisanship can be among, you know, that suite of identities, the mega identity that can shape what you do. Um, And so I kind of extend that idea here to citizenship, uh, to citizenship norms specifically, uh, and think about, well, do these become part of that suite of identities as well? Um, And thinking um, especially how, when that would happen, when these sort of superseding identities become attached to the things they are meant to bridge, how that not only undermines or erodes the um, sort of bottom up source of of democratic stability, but it also makes um, democratic hard times harder because you lack that kind of safety net of values that made the democracy resilient to differences. Great. And and can can you talk more about the positional incentives and the institutional design pieces? So when... um, So in the book, what I then say is like, so this can happen, right? That you can attach a partisan identity, uh, you know, um, attach your citizenship norms to to your partisan identity, but that this happens in policy or sorry, in institutional contexts. So, um, you know, states are designed really differently. They have different rules, right? They have different uh, incentives among those rules to encourage participation or to encourage more consensus versus um, more... um, what we call zero sum games, where every iteration is a winner and a loser, right? Uh, so what I try and do is sort of think dynamically about the context in which these identities, in which citizenship can become partisan. And I make this argument about, um, again, what I what these positional incentives. Uh, and so there's kind of two dimensions to positional incentives. One is that your the party that you support or identify with or represents your values, um, you're either in power or you're not. So you're either the incumbent or you're the challenger. Um, so that's one thing, right, that could that could um, attach your citizenship norms, your, your understanding of what it means to be a good citizen to your party incentives, right? So in practice, what that would mean is, well, you know, we're in charge, my party's in power. So like my obligations are kind of different, 
right? That's essentially kind of a layman way of describing what it means to attach your, your norms to um, your positional incentives versus if you're in the challenger party, then you might define being a good citizen as um, challenging the incumbents, right? That that's like a specific partisan motivated obligation for you, uh, which then bleeds into what you think is being a good citizen. So when those kind of merge. So the first thing that, that the first, I guess, aspect of a positional incentive is like whether you, the party you support or identify with is in, in power or not. And then the second is the system in which those incumbents and challengers cooperate or not. So the system in which parties compete changes the incentives for um, competition or cooperation, so to speak. So what I do in the book is I consider the difference between winner-take-all systems, um, zero-sum uh, game, right? So th- these are your United States's, right? These are um, your your first past the post, right? So um, majoritarian systems where right, the, the governing party makes all the rules um, and uh, the opposition is sort of just like, opposing, right? Zero sum, each iteration. And in the US, right, they're, they're particularly high stakes, we know now, right? Like this is sort of the, I think the the takeaway from the new book by uh, John Sides, Lynn Vavrick et al, right, is the idea, uh, what's it called? The bitter end, right? The idea that kind of every interaction in the United States now is just like, is uh, the end all be all, right? So um, these are high stakes, interactions versus more consensus systems, which by design um, promote more uh, cross-party cooperation or conciliation, right? In that your your majority today may be a different majority in the next election based on different coalitions, based on different, um, you know, uh, regional politics, et cetera. So it's just kind of just a positive sum system where, you know, every iteration is not your last iteration. And there's, uh, and, and so there's more incentives to cooperate. So within that context, there are incumbents and challengers. And so those two, I argue, make for positional incentives that can either, um, that, that can, uh, sort of become adjoined to civic norms or good citizenship. That's great. And it's it's a very sophisticated theory. Um, and we're, we're going to get to sort of the, the empirics in a moment. But I want to ask you first about sort of general methods and sort of empirical approach. So, you know, what, what sort of data do you rely on to try to investigate these arguments? Right. So because, you know, really kind of the theory came first, right? So then what I needed to do was think about, well, which cases maximize variation on those variables, right? I needed a wide variety of contexts, right? Um, I needed, you know, variety of, of incumbent and challengers. And and the only, and, and I had to choose among the existing states at the moment, right? Um, so like there were a number of challenges and I'm really happy to talk about the challenges alongside kind of the choices I made. Cause I, gosh, like, you know, when you're a grad student and and you're just like, read all these finished things and then learn how to do them, right? And you're like, oh, I don't. And you, you, you sort of just, you know, you think, oh my goodness, like how do you ever do something finished and bound, right? Because the mistakes are not a part of the, and I think I, that's why I love podcasts so much, right? Because like, 
it's sort of the, the behind the music of like how these books are written, right? So so I needed three countries. Well, no, I needed countries to maximize variation. Uh, and I had a finite number of resources uh, in which to field nationally representative surveys. Uh, so, you know, we, you recognize the necessities given the research design, but also the constraints of the real world that is budget, that is time, that is language ability. Right. Okay, so, so working within these two potentially overlapping circles, there was a small like sliver of, of countries that were out, right? I wanted to study liberal democracies. Um, I'm a Europeanist, so I wanted to study Europe, but I you know, was in the United States and there, were obvi- there was obviously democratic erosion <laughs> taking place in the United States. So it was an opportunity to commit the cardinal sin, which is compare the U.S. and com- put the U.S. in comparative perspective um, with the hubris of, of comparing the United States to other countries. Uh, so I had the opportunity to do that. And so uh, what I did was um, I chose three countries that could maximize variation up, um, across these institutions, right? The winner take all versus consensus. So Germany, a multi-party system with a, a consensus, consensus federal system. Um, the UK, multi-party, but winner take all. And then the United States, which is two-party, first past the post, um, winner take all. So like I could maximize variation across those three countries. Um, in the ideal world, I would have also included France, but I just didn't have enough money. So this is like, that's the truth. Right. Um, and the time, like, do you know how hard it is to run three nationally representative surveys where your dependent variable is a composite of 14 different items and you're running this, I made so many bad choices but like it was just it was a ton of work um and i know we signed up to do a ton of work but like it was an unwieldy thing at three that i couldn't even really fathom the idea for um and then someone's like do canada and i'm like (laughs) don't talk to me ever again no okay but (laughs) so I picked these three countries and um, I did, I embedded survey, ex, uh, survey experiment into these national surveys um, that was run by YouGov and in the U.S. and uh, Respondi in uh, Germany and the U.K. And they were in the field. Okay, it's a pre-pandemic time. So it's like, it's been <laughs> difficult to remember. Yeah. <laughs> I believe the year was called 2019, but I'd have to go check. Um I, I do think that's what it says in the book. Yes. Yeah. So it's the summer of 2019, and it's it's challenging to pick a time to field um, to field the survey because you wanted a time that wasn't politically salient in one way or, or another, right? So you wanted to pick a slow season. And I remember at that time I was traveling in the UK, and there was like talks about like, are we gonna have an election? I was gonna, and I was like, can you decide because I need to field this survey before. August, which is like, or before September, which like, I'm pretty sure is when Brexit's going to happen. So it was like, like trying to pick like 10 days in which to get this done, right? was a bit of a, bit of a challenge, right? You didn't want an election year, you want it. So yeah. So the only thing that I couldn't do with this research design um, and these cases, which I wanted to do is to vary the political party in power. So in all three cases, you have a conservative party in power um, as majority. So I say that um, because in Germany at, at the time, the, um, the, the Christian Democrats, uh, 
were in a coalition with the social Democrats. Uh, so the traditional kind of mainstream left party. And so that's one of the ways in which I think about including Germany is that it does provide some leverage in thinking about a left party in power. Um, and, and because you have more parties, you can then also look at right, um, right of center parties as in the challenger role. So that's one of the things that Germany does offer in the three kind of country comparison that gives me some leverage on that question. But like, it's just, there's nothing I can do to put different governments in power to make the research design as clean as possible, right? So we make choices in an imperfect world and we do the best we can. And we think through how the data that we have can provide us information on some of these questions. So well, that's my I, thing. Yeah. I, I, I think the book does a great job of, of making the most, right, <laughs> of what it was that you were able to do. And you, you were able to do quite a bit, right? These, these nationally representative surveys with embedded experiments in three countries, right? And as we'll talk about in a little bit, you also t- uh, um, look at two different types of democratic threat, right? Um, but let, let's start with where your empirics start, right? Your empirics start with um, actually trying to measure and describe citizenship norms. So c- can you tell us about your findings there? So I have these three kind of, I think of them as buckets. That's the inelegant term that I would use with myself um, in describing these behavior, beliefs, and belongings. And that we had, um, you know, through factor analysis, I saw how they would kind of, these I had 14 items of good citizenship. So they were things like always vote an election or keeping watch on gov- vigilance, right? Watching your government, um, being active in associations. So those are some of the behaviors. Um, accepting diversity, uh, being patient if your side loses, um, having friends of different opinions or understanding the opinions of others those all interrelated with each other and they were distinct, you know, using factor analysis um, and, and distinct from the behaviors. And so those like, to me really resonated as a set of beliefs, right? Um, that, you know, you don't need to sort of do something to demonstrate that you're understanding of others, but it's sort of a value that you hold and they all sort of strongly interrelated to one another. And then the third bucket or set of items um, were about belonging, about obeying the law supporting actions of government, feeling British and speaking English. Now I should say like one of the things about factor analysis is it can produce sometimes these, you know, it was, was, these categories were inductive. So I did not sort of start with the idea that there would be these three categories. What I knew at the beginning was the literature sort of starts and stops at behavior. So I needed to include more items. And so I was including all kind of all these other things as as I was, you know, pulling from the International Social Survey Program, pulling from the immigration literature. And then the factor analysis kind of produces inductively these different groups. Now, it was surprising to me, because maybe I'm naive, that like obeying the law would load with feeling American, would load with speaking English. Because, you know, if I ask that on its own, obeying the law could be a behavior. It's also a core value of liberalism, right? So, I mean, rule of law could really exist like in any of these buckets that it loaded so strongly with these identity dimensions was really telling, right? It it paints as kind of allegiant citizen. And that's kind of like in my mind how I referred to it. Um, But like, 
which tells us a lot kind of about, about, you know, kind of civic, how people interpret civic duty. I should say that, and, and I do say in the book, but I'll, I'll share with the listeners that this third category, uh, the, the allegiant citizen, the belonging, it doesn't look the same in Germany as it does in the UK and the US. So those allegiant values do not sort of interrelate strongly with speaking German and feeling German. And that I think too is, is an important finding. So we have these 14 items that were kind of that were spread across these three groups. Um, and, and what we found is we, I just did the Royal we there. What we, what one finds, uh, right. Is that there's a lot of overlap bipartisanship across these values. Um, in thinking about, and you know, this precedes thinking about these values in the context of democratic threat. This is just asking these values with no prompts, right? That, you know, there's a lot of important overlaps. So both, you know, I'll, I'll just use the U.S. as an example. Both Republicans and Democrats think that voting is an important part of being a good citizen. That's like always the most important part in like every study of U.S. norms is like voting and vigilance, keeping watch on government. And there's some, I mean, there's some variation, but this variation has always existed. So it's also documented in some of like Russ's earlier work, things like helping people or being members of associations. These are dimensions of good citizenship that Democrats are more likely to hold than Republicans. Um, Accepting diversity is a value of good citizenship that Democrats are more likely to hold than Republicans. Uh, and then maybe as you would kind of expect, um, feeling American is more widely held among Republicans than Democrats. And speaking English is way more held by Republicans than by Democrats. So, um, but like the important, the important takeaway from just kind of this descriptive overview least in the U.S., is that you do have sufficient overlap. You have um, Democrats and Republicans feeling like putting equal importance on things like the liberal democratic values, things like having friends of different beliefs, respecting the understanding the opinions of others, um, having patience if your side wins versus loses, right? Or, yeah. So like that is some, com- that was some comfort, right? That, that like, it hasn't already exploded, I suppose, right? And so the, the way that I got, you know, so we'll talk later about the different kinds of threats, but, you know, these are kind of unfilled, you know, there, there was no treatment before um, uh, before respondents had these. Like they read something about like a healthy diet, right? So they weren't triggered into thinking about something specific about democratic threat. And so this was like, in the world of finding of in, in the world in the small world of reassuring findings in political science, like this was great. Like this was kind of good news. Like the majority of people and the majority in the you know the majority of places you know uh, had these sort of consensus views, and that's sort of the part of democratic stability, right? So, and I suppose that I think of it as good news is because in most days in most contexts, most people don't think about citizenship and don't think about politics. So. Great, fine. So that was the finding for the U.S. Do you want me to talk about the other cases? 
But I, I think that's okay. We're, we'll talk more about the other cases uh, in a bit. Um, but I think it's very helpful for listeners to have sort of a, a sense of what uh, things look like in the in the United States to kind of get get um, sort of a, uh, an idea of how it is that you're sort of conducting this analysis in other places as well. So in the book, uh, as we kind of hinted at earlier, you examine two democratic threats: polarization and foreign interference in elections. Um, so let's start with polarization. How does that threat affect citizenship norms in the three countries that you're looking at? Okay, so I think I want to actually start answering that question by telling you how I picked the threats that I picked, because that, too, was a function of what countries I could survey, what was happening at the time, and some of the concerns I had about um, about. Um, using threat in, in a, uh, in a vignette, right? So any political question could possibly trigger things, you know, uh, right. You don't know what they would trigger. People have different concerns and, and, and different, um, worries at any given time. And I also had to pick, I had to pick threats. I didn't want to make anything up, right. I didn't want to sort of say that there was like this new hypothetical insane threats. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, I didn't want to do that. Cause I, I wanted to understand the actual world we live in. Um, And so I had to pick threats that existed in each country to some degree, but also threats that didn't inherently trigger partisanship, right? So that was a real concern. So for instance, if I had to pick what I think was the most honest democratic threat to each of these countries at that time, and I think is still the case, it's nativist parties, right? It's, it's populism. It's, yeah, it's, um, right. But there's just no way to ask that question that just doesn't automatically trigger a partisan response, right? Um, you know, this was the case in Germany. This was the case after Brexit. This was the case and remains to be so in the United States, right? And so how, like, I just didn't think of an elegant or even like, like a simple or even a complicated way to try and square that circle. Cause I just, I would just be taking like a partisan, like a, a like a, 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 a poll of, of, you know, of, of a partisan survey. So like, I didn't want that. I really wanted people to think about the question at hand um, and then the problem at hand. So I started with polarization because it is ostensibly a blameless problem. I know that, and that's why I use the term ostensibly, because I know that people would disagree with that. But I I don't know that everyday citizens think through the nuance of it. And I think, and by blameless, I don't mean that like Republicans are responsible and Democrats don't do anything. Like, I, I don't mean like that kind of like, but I mean, we're all a part of it. So we could, it's sort of a horizontal, I, I call it like a horizontal um problem. It's one that we all share in. And it's one that, you know, regardless of who you blame, it's a problem we all share in. And it's one that we could have real agency in affecting. So I start with that problem. And it's a problem in all these countries. It takes on different um, uh, sort of different tones, different colors, the way that part, the way that polarization manifests in, in say Germany, which is, you know, I describe it as social polarization uh, versus U.S., which is explicitly partisan. But but it, it exists that that bonds between people are becoming attenuated. That's a problem for 
and it speaks right back to that, the way that I define democratic stability, right? That we have these cross-cutting ties. So I start with that problem um, before then jumping into kind of foreign interference election, which you know we could debate whether or not that automatically triggers partisanship. But um, so starting with polarization. Uh, so that's why I included that. And I think that's an important part of the explanation. Um, so we sort of expect that, let me also explain how it worked. Um, so what I did was um, I embedded a survey experiment into these national surveys. It was at the beginning of the survey. So uh, you would receive this vignette uh, to prime respondents to think about democratic implications of the problem at hand. So it would describe what polarization is, right? And that, you know, Brexit, you know, uh, leavers versus remainers are not solved, you know, cancel, we cannot come to, you know, come back together and parliament's making it worse. And then like some elite messaging about how this is a problem for our country. So it presents the problem and then it has someone sort of say explicitly, this is a problem for our democracy. So the individual reads that vignette. Um, and I think of that as kind of like a, um, like a, like a manipulate the salience there. I just present them with information that happens to be true and like, and, and what they're thinking about and sort of helps them to start thinking about it. And then I follow up with um, like an attention check, like what was the problem that you read? And then I ask an open-ended question about um, describe to me like how this, like what your reaction is to this problem. Uh, so then I also have all these like, 3,000 or so open-ended responses, like as not just a check to, you know, make sure that they really, what I really wanted to do was like have them continue to think about this problem. So it was a way of kind of extenuating the the, the effect of, of thinking about the problem, but also like what it also produced is like some wild open-ended responses, which was just a real joy to read <laughs> as I went through the coding. Um, there's just nothing like the colorful language that that British respondents use in an open-ended survey to really kind of lighten one's research process. Um, and so they responded to, you know, they read that and then they got these 14 items of good citizenship that were randomized. Um, and so that's kind of how, and then, you know, for foreign interference, we get a, a different um, uh, vignette. Okay. So now I've told you why I picked polarization. I told you how I, <laughs> I did it. Now let me tell you what I found. So what we see that is polarization reveals a really strong difference in how like the partisan right versus the partisan left interprets civic obligation. Uh, so kind of consistent with con- what I expected with the theory of Democ- with the positional incentives argument is that there's this unevenness in response. So these status quo challengers, so in this, in most of these cases, right, um, the partisan left, they're changing their citizenship norms. They're updating what it means to be a good citizen in response to the threat of polarization, while incumbent status quo beneficiaries, right, so the individuals that support the partisan right in the case of the UK and, and the US here, um, they either withdraw, with kind of withdraw uh, or they kind of remain unaffected. So we see this uneven response to the problem. Um, so in the in the U.S. and the U.K., the partisan left increases their valuation of liberal democratic values. Um, in Germany, we observe this sort of uptick from a plurality of respondents. So both left and supporters of both left and right parties will will kind of um, 
embrace more uh, liberal democratic values as dimensions of good citizenship. Uh, and then by comparison, we see like, there's a lot of asymmetry in the majoritarian uh, case studies. So essentially, you know, what I take away from this is like within these majoritarian said within these zero sum systems, right? The, you know, supporters of, of left parties, these challenger, uh, these in these challenger roles, they see the problem of polarization and they, they, they double down on liberal democratic values. Like they already had high valuations of these values, right? And they really doubly down. Whereas, you know, we do observe among supporters of the partisan right, like they're either not updating at all, right? Or they're becoming more illiberal as a response, as like, you know, uh, what's the term? Rallying around the flag. So thank you for that. Now, if, if we move to the other um, democratic threat that you consider, which is foreign interference in elections, does that have similar effects on citizenship norms or does it have a, a different effect? We see a similar effect in the sense that partisan losers of So foreign interference is really different than polarization because where I described polarization as like a shared problem, foreign interference in election, there's an obvious winner and loser of that election. And because I said these are real, like, you know, I, you know, the, the treatment or sorry, the vignette refers to the 2016 election. I don't refer to the winner of that outcome, but like, I think you would know who that is. And so, you know, it is my best effort to try and get people's opinions about the election itself. Um, there's language in there about like ensuring that the next election is fair um, confidence in the next election, if the current election um, is potent, is is on what is was is undemocratic, uh, is unfair. Um, so when I interpret these results, you know, it's not just partisan. It's not just status quo challengers and beneficiaries, but we're really talking about winners and losers. Um, and so what we see is like the partisan losers of elections, right? And those who support parties out of power, they really mobilize in response to a threat, right? While the winners withdraw or reject the frame that interference is threatening at all. So one of the other things that I'm able to do with these open-ended responses that I mentioned, and they really come into play during this treatment, is I get to see if people respond certain ways because they agree if the election was true or not, it was, was, was um, interfered with or not, right? So I, I'm able to, to, to code um, objection. Um, at one point, I also coded emotion <laughs> and, and it highly correlated with objection. So I didn't view it as a particularly useful, but there was some colorful language and some all caps energy that people brought to open-ended responses here. Um, in any event, uh, so I was able to see how much of the objection or how much of the attitudes as a response to the foreign interference uh, vignette was about objecting full stop to to the idea of the treatment, right? That they disagreed that they disagreed with the notion that the 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 um, the uh, election was invalid or was or it was um, unfair, uh, interfered with. That's the term. Um, so. So we, we do see sort of this 
similar effect in the sense that like the outsiders, in this case, you know, partisan losers mobilize, right? Because they have the incentive to versus uh, even those that agree that the election was interfered with um, either um, demobilize or they kind of embrace some, so they either do nothing uh, we see no movement or they um, embrace some illiberal values and they embrace some of the belonging um, items, right? Like speaking English becomes more important, right? So we see some of those allegiant values um, sort of activate in response to information about interference in the, in the 2016 election in the case of the U.S., now, obviously, there's there's much, much more to the book. Um, and towards the end of the book, you really get into all of the various ways that divided citizenship makes democratic problems worse. Um, but I, what I want to uh, get to um, is the million dollar question, right? So you've, you've shown us uh, in the book and you've told us now in, in very compelling ways uh, um, that you know, divided citizenship is uh, extremely problematic, right? That, that, it, that it makes democratic threats uh, and democratic crises worse. Um, so what what do we do? What do we do about divided citizenship? I don't know, Louise, what do we do? God, I wish I knew. Um, you know, I will never be satisfied that I can't offer a good answer. I think through some... You know, this is just like the pandemic politics book. <laughs> I was like, is this the same conclusion? Do we just throw our hands up? And I think that that's not the right answer. Um, I just, you know, I personally don't have the tools to research the right answer. I, you know, I think a lot of people out there are doing really great work on building interpersonal ties at the individual level, right? I'm really doing the work of bringing, you know, in my mind, it's like the, the you know, the Peace Corps version where you move uh, red Americans to live in blue states and blue Americans to live in red states. I mean, the, the answer is really just bringing people together again. I mean, it's it's finding common purpose in things that are not politics to then potentially have spillover effects into politics, right? And I think it's a different generation of leadership uh, that um, wants wants to repair some of the the the, the, the damage that democratic erosion has taken place, right? You can't replace, you can't change elite preferences. So assuming that that's the case, like the, by centering citizens, I'm not at all negating the fact that elites still drive the car, right? But there are still other people in the car that want to have bathroom breaks and want to stop for snacks. And like, they have opinions too. So like, you can't change where the cars, if you can't change where the car is going, right? And you need a new driver. This is now a very extended metaphor, which is like reflecting the extremely long cross-country road trip I took last summer when I was doing these proof pages. Um, uh, but like, you know, there, there are so there are solutions. There is like there is never any. It is not totally hopeless. You know, but as I kind of signposted much earlier, like I think civic education could use a total overhaul. Um, you know, this is something that that is taken seriously in Germany. They have a they had um, a discussion about this in twenty in pre pandemic times. <laughs> Um, about civic education overhaul. You know, the UK only introduced, actually, England, Scotland, it's not it's not um, extended to all parts of the UK, uh, a national civic curriculum. Um, and 
you know, the U.S. is like we really pa- keep, you know, paddle with a I'm not going to use another travel metaphor here. Um, <laughs> you know, like we do not take civic education seriously in the United States. And so and I take it very seriously that we don't take civic education seriously because I'm so hyper aware of how much work immigrants do to become citizens, both in the United States and in the UK and in Germany and all the, like, and civic education is such a cornerstone of that process. And it, I find it incredible that it's just taken for granted that the education and the socializing processes build good citizens. That's just not true. It can't be true. Like, <laughs> So like, and I know it varies so much from state to state, from city to city. I mean, I think another thing we learned about the pandemic is how local, right, decision-making can be, right? I mean, in my school district, we were in person last year. Uh, I have colleagues at UCLA and UCSD, and they were both online, and they're both 40 minutes away by car, right? So like, we know how much variation can exist at, from, at the local level, but that's not to say that we can't have a real important conversation about what civic values are, what citizens should do, and to take this seriously from K and upwards, right? We just unleash 18-year-olds onto the world and kind of expect that they have these civic skills that like support our democracy. And like, I'm not sure that we can take that for granted anymore. And I really appreciate it in the in the conclusion, your extended discussion of, you know, th- these kinds of issues that you're mentioning of civic education, whether we need to think, take sort of a more, I think you call it a, a out of the box approach to, to civic education, think about the role of media literacy, etc. Um, but uh, Sarah, we, we've, I wish we could keep talking about the book um, and, and listeners should really know that we've only skimmed the surface uh, of what's in the book. Um, but we, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just want to ask you a final question. You know, this book is out in the world. Your other book on pandemic politics is also out in the world. So what are you working on now? What am I working on now? <laughs> I'm working on my sabbatical. <laughs> that is the correct answer. <laughs> I'm working, I have, you know, no, I just want to say that I'm taking a, a, a much needed kind of break. I'm working on um, finishing up some projects. I have, okay, I will talk about one thing. I have this fantastic co-edited volume with Jennifer Sear uh, on qualitative methods. Uh, during the pandemic, we had this and, and I'm very much a part of this, that that uh, there are disciplinary incentives to adopt quantitative methods, um, which does, and, you know, alongside those disciplinary incentives, there are, you know, less outlets that publish qualitative work. There are less universities that teach qualitative methods. And there are, during the pandemic, which is how Jen and I started having this conversation, less opportunities to get to field sites, less opportunities to collect qualitative data in in, in different forms. So we put together a volume with 40 contributions um, from all women contributors that that teach an individual that wants to learn how to do good qualitative research, and that's the title of the book, how to do it from choosing a research puzzle, choosing your question to publishing qualitative work. It's through the whole process. It's positivist and interpretivist. And it's it, it hopes to be kind of a, a, a real definitive handbook on sort of not just 
doing these methods, but reading these methods, reviewing these methods, sort of a way to hopefully um, provide answers for rebuilding an energy for qualitative research in political science. Sarah, that sounds like a great book. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. The book is Sarah Wallace Goodman's Citizenship in Hard Times, How Ordinary People Respond to Democratic Threat, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.